today we continue our decade series with a year that, honest to God, I don't know how I didn't cover before. It's it's 1980-1980. This, this year is going to go down as one of the most important, one of the most pivotal years in all of pop culture. It dictates the next 30 years and beyond. I'm going to take you to the artist, the creator's the television, the movies, the music, we're going to cover it all. It is the year of Avengers 200. It is the year of X-Men Days of Future Past. It's the year of X-Men Dark Phoenix. It is the year Moon Knight number one burst onto the scene. It is the year of the new Teen Titans at DC Comics. It is the year of Shogun, where one in every three television show was watching this epic miniseries. We get it all started today on an all-new episode of observations. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld, or as my parents name me, my full name, Robert Paul Liefeld. But here, I, I host observations. I, I have been making comics 38 years. I want you to know how much I absolutely love and adore comic books and all people who dig comic books. That is that is my passion. It has been my passion going on 50 plus years of my life now. Yes, I am pushing it. I am getting up there. But one of the true joys of my life is this podcast and and talking comics with all of you. And I just I just want to start today's show. I want to show show you uh something that is tremendously important to me. I wanted to share it with you guys right here at the top. And I came across a uh, uh, a saying that I think sums up my just feelings for for this show and increasingly life in general. It is a quote by a I'm gonna I'm gonna assume a philosopher named Rumi R U M I. It was shared and I really just stopped and I wanted to dwell on it and I want to share with you and it really again sums up how I approach this entire show and how I feel about you each and every member who listens and and. Uh, all of you who express that you listen and, and that you participate with this show. I mean, again, you just absolutely blow me away. But this is the quote. It says, wear gratitude like a cloak and it will feed every corner of your life. Wear gratitude like a cloak and it will feed every corner of your life. I don't know that I show gratitude enough. I, I try and really uh, convey gratitude as much as possible because I am completely grateful. You, you don't think that at 56 years old, I don't look out uh, at my family, at my, my adult kids, at paying for their schooling, their college, their their grade school, middle school, um, just all the ways that, that, that we've invested in, in our family. And, and, then, and then I realized I got to do that because I make comic books. This is all a result of the fact that I followed my passion Graduated high school, got hired in comic books, and never looked back, and just kept going and 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 kept uh, really clinging to my passion. And because of that, I have I have been able to raise a family. I have been able to afford a family. I have been able to you know educate a family and feed a family, provide. It, it, it is such. I I I am so grateful each and every day, and and I don't think I show it. And I, and I share it enough, and I just wanted to absolutely start this show off by saying I appreciate you, and I want to wear more gratitude, especially in regards to where this show is concerned. I think that today's show is one of the 
best shows that I am ever going to share with all of you. It, it is a show that I, I got to be honest, I was profoundly ashamed that I have not covered this year. We do a series here on Rob Observations. It's called The Decades. And yeah, we were doing it before a, a very, very, very famous person called her concert The Eras. Thank God. Uh, we, we call ourselves The Decades. I've been doing this for the last two years where I s- single out a, a, a very specific year and I share the events of that year with you. I want to tell you right off the bat, this is not for nostalgia's sake. The years that I, uh, that I curate and, and share with you and, and, and kind of carefully go down each of the, 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 the different aspects of that year that I find important and applicable, they are there because I believe there, are, there is so much great information to be learned and to be shared, and they are precursors, I believe, for what may be right around the corner for the entertainment business, the comic book business, pop culture at large. This is not and will not today be a trip down memory lane. You will see this is perhaps uh, the most important year. My my favorite year in comics is probably always going to be for a lot of different reasons, 1978, but it would be in a neck and neck horse race, a photo finish with this year, 1980, because 1980 was absolutely a far more important year across all of pop culture, a far more important year. And I'm going to lay out today all the reasons why. 1980 was a was was really a, a a precursor for 30 years that would follow. This sets the stage for everything to come in the comic book industry, including Image Comics. We all have years that we remember in a certain way. 1980, I can almost replay every single year. It was such a a a banner year and an, an incredible year. But what we are going to get down to the huge moves by talent. And, and, and some of the moves by management, some that worked out, some that didn't, but they all went into this giant stew of 1980s pop culture that set the stage for three decades and more to follow. So it is going to be great to kind of parse each and every bit of this information. And along the way, only some of the biggest storylines ever. I, I, I literally <laughs> cannot believe I did not do 1980. I went back through the decade series and I'm like, okay, there, I did 79. Okay, well, whoa, whoa, we did 2000. Okay. And, and I mean, there are so many years and I have had the great pleasure of, again, uh, going through those years very specifically and sharing them with you, but none of them, none of them hold a candle to what is going to be shared with 1980. Some of it have has uh, reverberations on some of my earlier podcasts in the very first year. Uh, the 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 talent, uh, the 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 you know the talents that defined a generation or the the the, the rivalry that that that, that defined a competition. There's even more of some of that today, but it it is uh, just just movies, television, comics, music. Such an incredible year. It's going to take at least two episodes to do this and and right now i'm only giving you one episode it's killing me too but boy it, it actually it, it's, it's helping me in so many different areas but but this this uh i'm doing one episode a year hopefully to to close out the year until the end of the year and and if it uh works out differently i'll, I'll certainly let you know up front but wanted to share gratitude with you and want to start diving into the incredible year of 1980 and all of the lessons and the events that we can discuss and learn from. And I want to start doing it right now. As, as I've already stated, and I'm going to repeat so many times, I owe it to 1980, the year, the singular year of 1980, to portray it in its uh, proper significance, okay? To, to, to give it its proper light, to put it in and position it in, in, in the like top of the mountain category that it deserves. You know, 
I don't have any memory of, of you know, the decade turn of 1969 to 1970. I was three and a half. I, I, I don't remember that at all. But 1980 was the first time, like, I remember, like, because it was a big deal that those new years are more uh, special when we are, are, are going into a new decade. And so I'm 12, uh, pretty much the entirety of 1980. I, I turned 13 on, in October of 1980. So, so I spent most of 1980 as a wide-eyed uh, 12-year-old, just really one of the best ages, one of the best possible ages you could be. You're just taking it all in. You've, you've become smart enough to really understand why some of the things that you like, you like, and your sense of joy and wonderment hasn't left you. It is rich. It is, uh, it, 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 it makes, it just, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's very pure. You, you have yet to be jaded unless you have super cynical parents and you're super cynical at 12. And then that, you know, you can't, you can't help that. Uh, but, but, but I'm, I'm telling you right now, this year is so crystal clear to me. And the, the turning of 1979, which again, I did an entire two part decades pocket podcast. Go back, look at it. It's, it's a fun one. 1979, 1978. 1978, 1980 are, are some of my favorite years in pop culture comic books, period. I mean, it, really, you could draw a line, and I've said this many times in the show. For me, 75 to like 80, 81 is like the sweet spot, the perfect spot. And I can, I can then tell you why. And it's not nostalgia. It is, it is these incredible works of art that have yet to be uh, really equaled or, or, or bested. And, and certainly some of the stuff that I'm going to share with you today stands on its own and, and is time-tested history approved and and just continues to 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 be the milestone of so many of these different titles and characters that I'm going to share with you but i remember it was different it was just it felt different 1980 and i'm telling you the world was ready to move on from the 70s of the nixon watergate which i witnessed as a kid it was on on our television all the time so there was political shame and unrest in the country then there was the vietnam uh uh kind of you know controversy and shame that that i really had been way too young to understand but every year that i got older from five to six to seven to eight and 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 hung around the 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 tables in my household where where the different couples would come home and come come over and visit with my parents or they'd go there and i'd i'd hear the discussions i'd read some of the newspapers i was curious kids just 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 like so many of you and and you know that vietnam watergate nixon just people were ready to put it behind that they were ready to put it behind. I mean, let's begin with the fact that early on in 1980, we would swear in a brand new president that whatever you say about Ronald Reagan, and I know people uh, in my own business, in my own family, they loathe him, they despise him, they think he was the face of great evil, along with the people who think he was the greatest president in the history of mankind, no less than, and and this means nothing because he is literally just an actor, but also a, a governor. And, and a producer and a seminal talent and, and, and several, uh, you know, championships to his name in, in his competitive field. But Arnold Schwarzenegger, again, who was the governor of my state of, of California for, for years, okay? Uh, and, and, and let me just give a soft plug for his Netflix three-parter is uh, just spectacular. I mean, it is, it is so great. I turned my kids onto it. And if they liked it, then I know that there's something in it for you if you haven't... Um, you know, experience it yet. The reason I obviously bring my kids up all the time is the disparity in our ages. It's, it's, you know, uh, a 33 year gap between me and my oldest. So, you know, there, there, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, if we can find 
common ground. Sometimes it's really it's really really fun, and I celebrate it. There's plenty of times where they will watch, and I'm going to be honest. I won't name the exact Eddie Murphy comedy, but they're like, "I don't get it, Dad. This is lost on me. You just like him because he says things loud." <laughs> that was. <laughs> That was my best, like, whoa, I got to rethink this. Dad, you just like things because he says them loud and that makes you laugh. And I'm like, wow, that, I'm going to I'm gonna have to think that over. So, so again, the, the, kid, the kid thing that I bring in sometimes, it really, it, 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 it gives me often clarity and, and it shows me when there's, when there's you know, stuff that we can connect on and stuff that we clearly will not connect on. So the Arnold Schwarzenegger documentary it's fantastic. You should check it out. It covers his his you know weight weight bodybuilding, his Hollywood, and then his politics in, in three really very clean cut chapters. Uh, but he was on a Rob Lowe podcast, which is Rob Lowe is a great podcast, and he and Arnold were speaking. And Arnold uh, said to him that he believes, you know, since he 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 came over in uh, I think the late sixties, early seventies, and he said for him, Arnold Schwarzenegger, an immigrant living here in 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 uh, in the United States. Of of America and in California and having been the governor, he says he believes Ronald Reagan is the greatest president of his lifetime. He liked what he projected, uh, which was honestly this gung-ho cowboy badass imagery. And certainly, I mean, if you have uh, people in your family who are uh, Republicans, he is their all-time, you know, uh, uh, hero. And and so that, that all started. Ronald Reagan as president starts in 1980, and it is the beginning of a shift in tone uh, that brings us in the mid 80s to the GI Joe Real American Hero, and we've covered covered that as well. Uh, his uh, outlook of strong military and strong world power became the GI Joe resurgence, and became Commando and Rambo. And don't think that uh, whoever holds the office of president doesn't affect pop culture because they do. And they have, and they continue. They continue to. They will. And so, 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 1980. The decade turned 79 to 1980. And let me tell you something. In comic books that year, that January was a huge gift to all comic book fans. Let me tell you what's going on in comic books. We're going to get to television later on in the show, uh, and, and and we're going to kick to the obvious, the movies, and the music, and and some more comic books in part two of this one. But in comic books, January. 1980. At this point in time, again, I now live in a different uh, section of, of, of Orange County, and, and my cross streets are Trident and Euclid, and, and boy, you want to talk about a neighborhood that has gone to absolute shit. I, I, I had to come home and pick, get, get pictures out of the neighborhood and how it looked, and, and my family standing in front of our house. Because when I drive by that same property and that same street, those same streets now, they're just... Uh, Man, they've just gone to absolute hell. But it was an upgrade for us. This was a nicer neighborhood, and and not all the not all the houses, but it seemed like a track of like three or four houses. Just, I mean, there are cars parked in what was my front lawn, and the entire area looks just, uh, just, uh, just unwell. And uh, and and yet, when I lived there in 1980, uh, just nothing but some of the best memories. Uh, it was we, we had been, we had moved to a bigger house uh, in, in 1977 and and green grass, big big backyard, fun neighborhoods. Uh, I've, I've I've mentioned it before. Much of this period of, of my life, I am spending on a street that has Mike, two Mikes, Mike, Mike, Craig, Mondo, and Eddie. Okay, uh, and and these guys, we uh, played you know. 
airsoft guns, the equivalent of airsoft guns back then. We uh, rode bikes until you know the sunset at ten o'clock on 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 summer summer evenings. We watched TVs. We went to movies. This was my this was my posse. This was my neighborhood posse. This is like you know the Stand By Me uh, era of my life. I mean, we would get up, you know, especially in the summertime every morning, find each other out, and start our adventures. And a couple of the guys really dug comic books. And we all love science fiction and adventure and sports. And so, and, and, and more than anything, again, bikes and, and skateboards. And what I had traded off in my famous Four Corners in Anaheim on, on, on the uh, crosswalk of, of Broadway and Magnolia with 7-Eleven, the liquor store, uh, the grocery store, and Pizza Hut, I had gained in Foodland, U-Totem, uh, and a, 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 another 7-Eleven. But there was a... For, for those of you who don't know, in Southern California, uh, U totem three three it breaks up into U, then dash tote, and then M uh, was a knockoff of Seven Eleven, and I'm going to tell you they had the most kick-ass selection of comic books on their racks. They didn't have a spinner rack; they had three shelves uh, just at the, where, where the cashier register ended. They had a shelf, a a small three shelf. Uh, area for the comic books and then a giant a, a much bigger you know double decker for all the magazines people magazine newsweek time sports illustrated all that stuff uh, and, and and various newspapers but turning the bend from that cash register was always going to be a surprise every tuesday because that's when they got new comic books in and that's when they put the new stuff out and and move the, the the rest of them kind of uh up up a shelf or or behind the existing comic books and in 1980, January 1980, I walked in and I saw the vision uh, from, from Avengers on the cover of Avengers, on the cover of Avengers 194, and he is blasting at some sort of danger room apparatus, some coiled arms, mechanical stuff, and, and it's like, wow, what an exciting cover, but, and, and I'm pretty sure George Perez drew this, and oh my gosh, was George Perez back, and indeed he was. One of my generation's favorite artists who had done just an incredible run of the Avengers from like 1975 through 1977, early 78, and had left for a good two years, was now back. And what an issue to come back with. This is inked by Joseph Rubenstein. It is the most beautifully rendered. If I could have a majority of pages from this issue, I would have a majority of pages from this issue. But little did I know that this is really George Perez's end run. He will finish the year uh, doing doing the Avengers, and then he's out. He's out of Marvel. And how did I know? I just knew that he was back on the Avengers with this absolute incredible issue featuring some of his most uh, beautifully rendered versions of the Avengers, whom I always really favored, maybe slightly even above uh, John Byrne's rendition of the Avengers at the time, because for so long they went back and forth. When George left, John Byrne stepped into the breach. He he had done some some issues of the Avengers in '77, but for the majority of 1979, John Byrne was drawing the Avengers. So can you imagine, you know, two of your favorite artists, two of the top artists in the comic book business, and don't take my word for it. Go to a comic book store, go to a newsstand at that time, and the artists that were igniting people's imaginations and setting the world on fire in the world of comic books were John Byrne and George Perez. And they had sh done shared duties on a number of different titles. They had both done runs from 75 to 80 on Fantastic Four, on Marvel 2 and 1, and on Avengers. So, so we, they were linked together. And they were seen by fandom 
as the very best artists of their age, the artists that excited them the most. George being back on the Avengers was a giant deal. I didn't know how long because I wasn't interacting with fan press, fan magazines, none of that yet. I won't find my way to a comic book store until the latter third of the year. So 1980 is when I find a, a comic book store as well. So, so again, 1980 is a rich, rich time. But let's start again. Avengers has George Perez back. And once again, let me just say, this past weekend, I was at a local art show. They're, they're, they're showing up all over the, the two coasts primarily. The big art dealers in the business, and there's about six of them. You can always find either like one through six of the big guys or two through six or one through five. Uh, they do shows in, in Jersey, uh, in, in New York, in, in, in Manhattan, and they do them out here in Southern California. And they, you know, they, they have cultivated a small kind of mini, in some cases, hotel ballroom. They're like really, really old school comic book store shows, comic book shows, except there's no comic book. It's just original art. And uh, yesterday actually was a really good showing and, and it was great. I, I had tucked away about six pages that I wanted to trade because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I wanted to be prepared with some great trade. And uh, gr- great story is I did get a great page and, and, and it involved Mr. Perez trading some Perez for a Mr. Cockrum. But that's for another time. But everybody that I encountered in that room is basically 39 to, to 65. And we all grew up loving all the same stuff. And if you doubt for one minute what I'm telling you about John Byrne and George Perez, then go hang out in an, or, in, in an original art, art dealer's room. Neil Adams had uh, kind of experienced his peak realm prior to Byrne and Perez coming on the scene. He had been the celebrated Batman, Green Lantern, X-Men, Avengers artist. He had done his big stuff at Marvel and DC, and now he was more or less doing more advertising and doing more media work and, and, had, and had really kind of taken uh, a backseat to comics. Comics had taken a backseat for Neil and his continuity studios at the time. And because, again, he is kind of the, the, the unchallenged kind of champion of fan favorites. Uh, Kirby was, by 1980, had, had really left both Marvel and DC. And his last run of like 1975 to 1978 at Marvel was a blast for people who really dug and, 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 and enjoyed his work. But he was unfairly being compared. And I use unfairly because many people use the word unfairly. Um, his style did not have the same kind of uh, refined, detailed approach as a George Perez or a John Byrne. And so it was judged against you know what they were doing because, again, they were the ones in favor. They were the pace horses. So George is back on the Avengers. At the same time, in the same week, on the same week, because there it is at the head of the pack at the U-Totem, they, they would, they would, or, or you know, the 7-Eleven, they would often, if they had shelves and not spinner racks, they would just put them out alphabetically in many, many ways the same as some of my direct comic book stores here still do. There was the latest issue of the X-Men. And they, like, literally, they came out on the same freaking day. So talk about your head exploding. And, and guys, Guys and gals, for the most part, for the mo- for the most part, this is how the entirety of the year was about to go. Uh, George and uh, John would 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 ship on the same day. So so I walked in to find Avengers one ninety four with George Perez returning to this book, 
alongside X-Men 132. And what X-Men 132 represents is the final chapter, the end game of the Dark Phoenix saga. We had gone on this saga with Byrne and with Claremont for the last several years since John Byrne took over in 1977. The book was now monthly. It had been shipping monthly. We had just wrapped up a tremendous adventure in 1979 with the X-Men battling a son of Maury McTaggart, who is this all-powerful, almost demigod uh, figure, son, uh, again, of Maury McTaggart named Proteus. And boy, did he put the X-Men through the ringer. Those were extremely exciting stories. They took place overseas in Scotland. Now the X-Men are back, and they are under siege from the Hellfire Club, who we've already kind of encountered. But this is what's going to set the stage for the end game and run us right through Dark Phoenix and the, and the Dark Phoenix saga. But we don't know that. This subplot, which has been dangling in the background of the last two years of the X-Men, is now brought to the fore because the events of this specific X-Men 132, this, this very specific beginning of this chapter, which finds Sebastian Shaw and his Hellfire Club standing over a fallen group of X-Men that they've defeated. And again, the great thing is, these guys didn't look like people who could take down the X-Men. They were dressed in their weird Victorian robes because they had like a weird eyes wide shut secret society that went, went, on, went, went, went on behind closed doors at the Hellfire Club for, you know, rich people and what it turns out to be mainly rich mutants uh, in New York City. And the X-Men infiltrate and are quickly handed their asses. But this, at the end of this issue is the seminal Wolverine rising from the sewer that, that at a dinner in San Diego last year with such giant, you know, figures as Arthur Adams, Frank Miller, Joseph Loeb, Robert Kirkman, uh, big time collectors, Dave Finch. It was bandied around. Is that the most expensive page in the original art world? Is that the page that everyone would trip over themselves? Is that a seven figure page? This was a 20 minute discussion. That's how important the last page of X-Men 132 is. When Wolverine is rising from the sewer, <clears throat> he's been cast down there because one of the mutants increased his density and his mass and he fell through all the floors and splashed hitting the sewage system that runs beneath the hellfire club but in a three-quarter page splash with some tiny panels above it he rises and shows his claws and it's like he's coming then in issue 133 we we watch wolverine as he infiltrates the hellfire club and seeks to free his fellow x-men and it's at this time that uh that the black queen which is the dark persona that gene gray has fallen into is going to manifest as dark phoenix and really again just set this in motion so the entirety of 1980 is hellfire club dark phoenix the tragic events of dark phoenix being uh uh given tribute and and the history of the x-men in, in, in issue 138 uh because the the death of phoenix which none of us saw coming was in 137 then you go 139, 140 is a one to go Wolverine issue. And then we end the year. And this may be one of the just, wow, blow my mind. We end the year with X-Men Days of Future Past. Another cover storyline that took up another 20, 25 minutes at these dinners that surrounded San Diego Comic-Con. What would you do for that cover? How much would you pay? These, you know, <clears throat> how much trouble would we get in if we, if we went on, went in, uh, with our fantasy, uh, cr criminal fantasies of somehow heisting this cover. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that consumed us, that, that guys who are, again, a few years older than me, a few years younger than me. But you have to, you have to understand that when I talk about the X-Men with the excitement that I talk about the X-Men during this period, during this 1980 year, this is the best the X-Men has ever been, full stop, 
period, done. Don't bring me your Mark Silvestri. Don't bring me your John Romita Jr. Don't bring me your Jim Lee. It's going to fall short. I'm going to go to the collector's market once again and tell you that these issues are much more expensive for a reason. The artwork is much more expensive for a reason. One of the artists I mentioned, a celebrated artist in a recent auction, had an entire three-quarter panel of the X-Men characters. They were all posed. They were all pretty. And it went for $48,000. a lot of money, right? It's a lot of money. A very similar shot, except the camera was pulled back further. And all of the X-Men on the page, this page that, sh- that, that, that sold for the, the $48,000 with the, with, the, with the fee, like $50,000, it's a lot of money. That had these characters at probably a good four to four and a half inches on the page, a much tighter pinup worthy shot. The John Byrne equivalent had the X-Men all assembled in a three-quarter page shot, but they were all about inch and a half tall. That page went for $100,000. The market has spoken. The collector's market, the comic book market, the original art market, and the passion of the fans like myself go to 20th Century Fox, go to Marvel. What do people still want? them to remake. They want them to remake the Claremont and burn classics that have been left behind. I was hoping against hope that 20th Century Fox would turn their cameras and do a proper Hellfire Club, Dark Phoenix. It didn't happen. I would settle for Garrock and the Savage Land and Zabu and Kazar. They could have, they could have easily tapped into that vein and done this incredible, almost Jurassic Park uh, chapter of the X-Men's life because that's, that's what it is. It's a battle with Magneto that goes completely sideways and ends them up in the Savage Land, I did a dedicated podcast on the year of 1978 and this era of the X-Men this past year. It was, a, it was an extended issue uh, where I really, uh, extended episode, I did a few of them where I put these characters under the microscope, the characters, the events, the creators. It was tremendous fun. I hope you can check that out and seek that out. But that alone deserves a movie, okay? The Proteus saga that I just told you about in 1979 with this all-power, mute, all-powerful mutant is a movie, okay? Uh, the, the conflicts that they have with the Imperial Guard that that, that uh, transitions the Dave Cockrum era into the John Byrne era is a two-hour movie. Uh, there are just arcade. There is so much brilliance in this Byrne Austin. We call it the Byrne Austin era because Claremont wrote all the other stuff. He wrote he wrote this book for 12 years. He's brilliant. He's he's a genius. He's the greatest comic book writer, uh, I think, of any generation. And, 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 and what carries him is that 12, 13-year amazing epic run of the x-men but it was never better than with burn austin that stuff and i take those pages out i am fortunate to have over 20 pages from that run and i i I pour over them the storytelling the layouts the design the characters the actual john burn illustrations and then the brilliant state-of-the-art futuristic inking i still can't figure out how terry l austin got lines like this lines that would inspire the Danny Meekies, the Scott Williams, the Dan Panosians, the Joe Weems, you name it. You tell me your favorite artist the last 30 years, and they at some point were completely drunk on Terry Austin. They were pouring over this, trying to figure out how to emulate the brilliance of what he does. Now, some of them, absolutely, were also looking at Dick Giordano and Klaus Jansen and Tom Palmer and mixed it up. But Terry Austin is the guy. He is the pace horse. He is the guy they all are trying to achieve in terms of overwhelming impact of a finisher slash anchor and there was none who did it better or according to marvel and according to jim shooter more popular a a, a terry austin on the cover they said was worth a twenty thousand bump in sales and that is straight from the editor-in-chief who ran marvel during this period 
So this X-Men era sets us on Dark Phoenix and barrels us right towards days of future past, which let me tell you something. Dark Phoenix crushed me. Dark Phoenix was the first X-Men book that I bought at a, at a comic book store in the summer of 1980 because somewhere around the spring of 1980, my dad and I had encountered a used bookstore in Fullerton, California, and I walked in and they had old comic books, but they were super expensive and they were ma- basically uh, mid-60s era Avengers Fantastic Four. And I couldn't believe the sticker shock. As a kid, you know, given that I was making about 5 to $6 a week doing my chores and lo- mowing lawns in the yard, and yeah, that, that, that's basically what it paid. A good, a good week was 10 to 12 bucks, but average, you know, 6 bucks a week. So look, 6 bucks a week, you save it properly, right? I mean, you're suddenly at $24 uh, uh, a month in 1980, and, and that that money spends. Okay, that is that is some serious cash in 1980. I went to a comic book store. I got Dark Phoenix. I, I've talked to you guys. I, I came home. I was at a Carl's Jr. Some of you guys have them. They're called Hardee's. I'd got my hamburger. I'd got my fries, my soda. I was at my booth all by myself. Uh, the 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 comics that I bought were wrapped in a bag and and with with backing boards on both sides, and I had put them in my my carrier slot pouch. Uh, on my on my 10 speed and so i was three quarters of the way home pulled away to read x-men 137 and and was literally upset wait what do you mean they killed gene gray wait and look guys if this is where you're finding out that gene gray dies uh, on 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 the you know the dark area of the moon while the watcher observes all as the x-men are battling the imperial guard i can't help you uh, we tried to keep it secret for th- for 30 plus years almost 40 years now so come on this is not spoiler territory it upset me. It was the closest I came to crying. I would absolutely, and I de- detailed this in, in the first year's shows, I absolutely bawled, broke down and bawled. Uh, I was so emotionally disturbed when, when Frank Miller uh, killed Elektra about a year later. So, so this was a really like, wow, it was, it was just unbelievable in regards to, to the emotions that I, that, that I was feeling. But X-Men 137, I picked up at a, at a comic book store, but I couldn't make those trips regularly. They were full day, all day Saturday trips that I would commit to my uh, 10 speed. And again, I was trying to keep up with the release schedule per the comic book store. And I would call and I would check. And so I certainly wasn't going every Saturday, but I tried to you know make sure that I would go the very next month to get the very next X-Men because the X-Men Avengers week was the one that I favored the most. Again, during this time, Something incredible is happening. Something incredible is happening in the Avengers. Again, this year-long George Perez stint that turns into the introduction, that vision, uh, that vision uh, interlude that then uh, leads us into a storyline uh, which introduces us to the Taskmaster with his buccaneer boots, buccaneer gloves, his chainmail, his blue and orange uh, uh, themed costume, and then kind of a skull mask with the hood. Taskmaster just came out of nowhere didn't see this coming oh my gosh david michelini george perez magic absolute magic the 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 cover to to avengers 196 literally blew my face off it's just the bad guy it's just taskmaster and i was like oh my gosh i like cannot get enough of this character and i haven't even turned the page yet he actually appears on the last page of 195 but 196 boom the taskmaster just what a cool new character and and it took the entirety of the avengers squad to to deal with him at that time so again the avengers is totally turning me on and the x-men is totally turning me on and these are two of marvel's top five best-selling books so they are 
two of the books that matter the most in the entire comic universe. And it is, and it is done by these twin titans of Perez and Byrne. I mean, come on, tell me that 1980 wasn't spectacular. When, when I mentioned the summer of, of 1980 and, and, and the death of, you know, Dark Phoenix and, and all the stuff that's going on in, in the Avengers, uh, that summer, the Avengers books, after, after Taskmaster, spring turns to summer and, and the, um, there's another great interlude issue, kind of like 194, that sets up the no- next storyline. It's a, it's a two-parter, which, which features a, a giant robot character that was created in the Godzilla magazine when Marvel had the Godzilla license. I did an entire, it's one of my favorite um, episodes of Observations two years back around the time that Kong and Godzilla was coming out with, where I t- t- talked to you about the entire Marvel Godzilla uh, adaptation and Godzilla encounters the Avengers and the Fantastic Four. And, and uh, it, it is such an, an incredible series. And if you didn't know that Marvel did an all-time banger of a Godzilla series. I, I absolutely encourage you either go back, track them down. They shouldn't be too effective or listen to the podcast and get a taste of what you were missing because it's so fun. But Red Ronin was this giant kind of samurai-themed robot that they had created to take down uh, Godzilla in that show, in that series. And now, after years, he's popping up as a nemesis of the Avengers in Avengers 198 and 199. And I'm like, oh my gosh, again, we still have George Perez doing his thing here. And that sets the stage. The events at the end of 199 set the stage for the very creepy Avengers 200. So 1980 is the year of the Avengers 200 at the same time that the X-Men is, is, is mourning the loss in, in X-Men 138 of, of Jean Grey in the X-Men. Uh, we've got the Avengers, which is extremely focused on Carol Danvers, a.k.a. Ms. Marvel, and this very creepy, controversial, it's gone, it, it, it has gone down uh, as one of the most controversial storylines that Marvel ever produced, especially in regards to being in an anniversary issue of one of their most popular titles. Uh, if I told you that Ms. Marvel fell in love with someone who turned out to be the son that she was pregnant with, uh, yeah, it, it gets weirder. It, it, I'm going to stop right there. I don't, I, I don't want to stir any more controversy, but to this day, it was so controversial that a year later, Chris Claremont did an Avengers annual that kind of tried to reset the tone of the story and talk about the fallout and the ramifications. Uh, it, it, it's creepy. It was creepy when I read it. Uh, George Prez drew all of it. He wasn't quite done with the Avengers yet. He won't leave the book until issue uh, two, 202. So, but, but, but George Perez is one of my favorite, if not my favorite Avengers artists of all time, is there for issue 200. And, and again, at the same time, John Byrne is giving us the X-Men. And here's the other thing. In July of, of, of 1980, John Byrne is doing an anniversary issue. I believe it's the 250th issue of Captain America. And George Perez is doing a Fantastic Four annual. Were these guys a pair of workhorses? When I talk about like, you know, um, being productive, and 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 really producing in the clutch, these two guys were Marvel's MVPs. Perez and Byrne were their MVPs. That Captain America issue 250 deals with the fact that what if Captain America had run for president he, he and become a third party candidate? I have covered the entire John Byrne Captain America run in in one of like uh, I think it's called the the, the most unheralded, um, the, the greatest comic run you never heard of. I hope you can find it, search it. Uh, it, it. It is one year of absolute excellence. John Byrne at his absolute peak, along with an incredible writer that he has a great rapport with named Roger Stern, and they give us one solid great year. I'll tell you why in that episode it didn't go further than that one year. 
Um, and it involves Jim Shooter, who is always looming over this era, both good and bad and, and positive and difficult. And that's going to come into play here real soon. Because little did we know that George Perez was about to leave Marvel, but ads were popping up around this time in the DC comics of this period, which I was buying at an all-time low. There's a lot of Superman comics, the success of 1978. Uh, Superman had really put Superman at the fore. So you got six, seven Superman-themed comics, including Justice League, including DC Comics Presents, Action Comics, Superman, Superman Family. Uh, you, you just got uh, World's Finest with Superman and Batman. So, so Superman and Batman were really the predominant themes, characters, books that, that DC was pushing. Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes. Which again, Legion was probably my only go-to dedicated, had-to-have comic each and every month coming out of DC Comics at the time. They had some genre books like Warlord by Mike Grell, which is more of a fantasy side, uh, sword and sorcery book. I was buying that as well. But the entire DC universe at large, I was not as engaged in. Justice League, I'd give it a look. I would buy most every Justice League copy, but not every Justice League copy. If I didn't have the budget, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go all in. There were, there were absolute other books I valued, and most of them were coming out of Marvel Comics. Marvel Comics seemingly had the edge in terms of talent. Frank Miller is starting on Daredevil during this period as well. And, and he, he is absolutely lurking. Walt Simonson is doing Battlestar Galactica and Star Wars stories for Marvel. So, I mean, they are stacked with talent at Marvel Comics in 1980. And really, the, the, the focus on the deep bench of talent at Marvel Comics is something that was noticeable to me and all my comic book, fr- my comic book collecting friends. And that's why this DC ad that I just alluded to becomes so important. There's, there's an ad running in DC Comics, the ones, the few that I picked up and I actually bought. I believe it was a Superman comic that I would not have otherwise bought for a single full page ad because it had George Prez art on it. It was the Teen Titans, the new Teen Titans. It said it was launching in summer of 1980. What in the hell am I looking at? Wait, George Perez is not going to be at Marvel, the only company I've ever seen his work at since 1974 because he was doing uh, martial arts comics, comic book, uh, 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 kung fu, karate comics uh, during during the, the, the kung fu martial arts craze uh, at Marvel. That's why I was introduced to him. But then, wow, he was doing the Avengers and Marvel 2-in-1 and Fantastic Four and X-Men and, 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 and so many incredible Marvel projects. And he was back in all his glorious form at Avengers. But wait, what? I mean, needle scratch. I mean that. I mean, much harsher than that. <laughs> that when the, you know, I mean, it was like that in my mind. Wait, what? And the image looked cool. Robin and Wonder Girl and Kid Flash, and and uh, the rest, I recognized. Th- those are existing Teen Titans. I always gave the Teen Titans book a shot, but it hadn't been published uh, by by DC since early early. 1978 or late 1977, they had tried to revive the Titans again in, in 75, 76, but it didn't go much more than a year and a half, two years at the longest. It, it even went down to a bi-monthly schedule. DC was trying forever to make the Titans happen again, but they just couldn't. And here it is. Wait, the new Teen Titans, big new burst on there. And there's four new characters. There's Starfire. There's, there's Cyborg. Okay, Changeling, is that, is that a character I'm familiar with? But they've changed his name. Turns out, yes, that's exactly what it was. And Raven. There were some serious X-Men vibes and some massive Marvel power. That's why that ad in those DC comics popped as much as, 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 it, as it did. 
you're like, wait, what? The power of advertising in comic books when a surprise image or announcement hits you can just absolutely excite you and 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 just floor you with with its its anticipation with its energy and this supercharged me so now i'm going wait when is george perez gonna gonna leave marvel or, or is he gonna do both well it turns out as i said issues 2000 2002 uh, i'm sorry issues 201 and 202 are where george perez says goodbye to the avengers and and there's an entire other podcast as this is when the avengers just completely went off cliff and and not just myself but most of fandom just was less engaged it never had that quality of marvel's two top guys working on it ever ever again in a grand history prior to that with john buscema with jack kirby with neil adams but man this this grandeur that burn and and perez and again you go rob why what's what's john burn george perez their figure work their faces their staging their action choreography their covers they just were the cut above they just had incredible commercial instincts honed by the people that influenced them, the Jack Kirby's, the Gil Kane's, the Neil Adams. They learned, they applied, just like anyone who gets into the business, they wanted to, they wanted to be uh, as relevant as you could possibly be. And they achieved that. Again, both men put emphasis on detailed faces. Both men put emphasis on um, drawing very attractive female figures. With Storm and your 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 counterpart to that was like Starfire, okay, and and then with Phoenix, your counterpoint was like Raven, okay. A cyborg had cool Colossus vibes, but he had cyborg tech to go on with him, and 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 to boot, he was you know a, a strong black man, which was cool, which which comics definitely didn't have enough of, and and then and then the fact that they reinserted a stronger vision of Robin and Kid Flash. And Wonder Girl, and of all of them, I have never liked Kid Flash more than under the pencil and illustration of George Perez. But so now we've got this signal. We've got this giant, like, wait, th- this is coming. And again, George is a workhorse. He's doing two books a month. He's doing annuals. He's doing the Avengers. I mean, two double-sized issues in one month with that Fantastic Four annual in July of 1980 and the Avengers 200. John Byrne is doing Captain America. John Byrne is doing X-Men. Everything's about to change in 1980. Everything is about to radically alter and, sh- and shift what's going on in the comic book world. George Perez is the single biggest piece of talent in my young collecting lifetime at that time to cross over and go to DC full time. And let me tell you something. The staggering, the absolute staggering statistic that follows is that what, what he's, he's doing at, at Marvel, George Perez, this, this popular, incredibly uh, celebrated workhorse, is, is now in August of, of 1980 because, you guys, it happens right after issue 200. DC puts their ads out. There's a preview in DC Comics Presents teasing you a short story of the Titans. And then little did we know that that, that same month, you're going to get... Teen Titans number one plus George is stepping in to finalize a Justice League storyline because the long celebrated uh, penciler of the Justice League, Dick Dillon, dies unexpectedly. And they ask George, once he crosses the street to go to DC, they say, we know we have Teen Titans on, on hand, but can you jump in 
and do Justice League. And George has always wanted to do the Justice League. That was one of the books that he was hoping to have access to when he changed his allegiance from Marvel to DC. And suddenly now, because of the untimely death of an artist named Dick Dillon, George steps in and it's in the middle of a summer crossover. The August, the, 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 the end of summer, the second part of their crossover that started in July with the New Gods, the Justice Society, and the Justice League. They all Justice League and Justice Society uh, teamed up every summer for as long as I can remember when I was buying DC Comics. In this 1980, they brought the New Gods in. Previously, they had brought the Legion of Superheroes in. Uh, they they had brought like uh, d- different characters fr- fr- from from different eras uh, in e- each and every iteration. But but now we've got the New Gods, Jack Kirby's New Gods, and Dark Side is the bad guy that they're facing. I open up the Justice League. You had, you had no advance notice of this. I just, again, go to my U-Totem and wait, is that a George Perez cover on a Justice League? And wait, this is holy. He's taking over. And as much as I admire Dick Dillon's art, and it was certainly a tragedy and untimely that he passed, the super George Perez fan, and he could not believe that he was drawing uh, Superman, Batman, Mr. Miracle, uh, Orion, Darkseid, Green Lantern, Big Barda, holy crap. And one week later, the Titans would arrive. And he did Avengers 201 that month. George Perez is suddenly doing two books a month at DC while he wraps up his commitment at Marvel with the Avengers. So yes, in one single month, you got the debut of Teen Titans, you got Justice League number 184, and you got Avengers 201. And you're like, holy crap, George Perez has has really taken taken the brass ring. He has taken uh, the pole position. John Byrne still incredibly, uh, incredibly relevant. Again, wrapping up his incredible X Men run, which we didn't know was about to be wrapped up. By the, by, by the way, at this time, I'm just like it's another completely unbelievable, uh, state of the art, best drawn comic ever. John Byrne, Terry Austin X Men issue. But George Perez has exited the building. He has left Marvel. He is the single biggest talent to ever do so, and I believe that is where. The shift comes. Marv Wolfman joins him. Roy Thomas joins him. Uh, Gene Colan will join him. It is a mini exodus with a giant piece of talent. The 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 you would you could argue he he would he was either one A or one B, um, and it all came about as a result of George and and Jim Shooter and and a and a long kind of term grinding uh, of their relationship. But I think it was deeper than that, and I've talked I've touched about it touched on this in other uh in other podcasts but i will remind you that i had the good fortune of being a teenager and attending so many of george perez's southern california appearances he loved to appear out here he appeared at comic book stores he appeared at uh creation conventions in the disneyland hotel he was always accessible he loved coming out here this went on from like 1981 through 1986 sometimes i would be a chauffeur his valet he would allow me to sit next to his table at San Diego the entire time, help him sell art, uh, take money, uh, m- make it so that he could keep drawing in the sketchbook while, while people would line up and get there uh, and, and pay for commissions uh, by, by George, either off his sketch pad or in their sketchbook. I had become a friendly attachment. He expressed a, uh, a sincere kind of affection for me. He started calling me at my own house. I would be like, George Prez's you on the phone? And because I had met him, he's like, Rob, it is me. Um, and, and we would have long talks. He encouraged me. He helped me to break into the business. 
gave me tremendous advice, tremendous guidance, was always incredibly uh, just gracious and showed gratitude as I, as I expressed at the, at the beginning. And, and, and that is really the example that so many of the guys my age who had those encounters, because everybody had their own encounters with George. And we wanted to follow, uh, I think, how polite he was and kind to us with the, the interaction of the people that support you. And that's what I have always tried to do. And I know my fellow peers, we've done the same. Uh, because during this period of time, there are many, I mean, I can, go, I can go six, seven other guys in the business tops in their business who were surly, mean, cynical, snotty, uh, the opposite of kind uh, to, to fans. And George was one of the best ambassadors and it started this early in his career. George crossing over, I believe, because <clears throat> again, I, I listened. I listened while he spoke. I listened to the things he said. He was extremely competitive. He knew facts, figures, sales, charts. Uh, I believe George saw the landscape. He saw the favor uh, of Frank Miller with Jim Shooter. Jim Shooter, you go back through those Frank Miller interviews, and, and there is no one who I have uh, praised, studied, analyzed, uh, put on a pedestal on this podcast than Mr. Frank Miller himself. And, and Jim Shooter saw early on what this guy had to offer, so much so that he moved aside a very established, popular writer and gave Frank the entire platform of Daredevil. This is kind of what Jim does to set himself apart and why he is like literally one of the greatest editor-in-chiefs in the history of comic books, uh, if not just Marvel, which I believe he is the greatest editor-in-chief uh, of, of my generation. I know you're going to say Stan Lee. I think, I think Jim Shooter is the modern, uh, still remains the, the, the last 40, 50 years, the, the quintessential, uh, seminal kind of executive figure because he was a great talent as well, and he was able to move and, 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 and move pieces around. But he absolutely rubbed people the wrong way. Not only did I think George uh, and he have, have several fallouts, and, the, and their relationship would truly never be repaired. It carries over into the Justice League Avengers uh, team-up that was on the schedule for Marvel and DC that got pulled, basically because of the friction between those two guys. And George would tell me, as a fan, sitting next to him on a stool at a, sh- at a store, and he would tell me how he had it. He would just had it. And he would raise his voice and he would, he would then get, kind of calm himself down because he realized it was just, he was triggered. He had just had it. He was not going to uh, take what he felt as the disrespect and the disregard for his schedule and his work. So this carried for years from, from 1980 all the way into 83, 84. And I think it, it, had a, it, it put a fire under George. And then certainly the fact that George is able to, because he will tell you in that 77, 78, 79 period where he's not doing as much work, it's because George had kind of uh, lost his discipline, whether whatever was happening in his life and his personal issues, he was not as reliable and he had to work his way back with Marvel and he had to work his way back in Avengers uh, 194, which followed on the heels of a tremendous, favored, uh, monumental, standalone X-Men annual story. The only time Terry Austin inked the entire interiors over George and Chris Claremont writes about it in the, in the omnibuses about how he had um, been wanting to do a story with George Perez. Uh, George was sought out. George was popular. George was in demand, and and yet he only did one uh, X Men story. But boy, is it notable! And and trust me, uh, I have five to six pages from that annual. Those are as hard to get as John Byrne pages. They are extremely difficult to obtain, and with good reason. And 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 one one of the biggest art dealers says, "You can talk to me about your Byrne Austin all day long." But I'll take that one Perez Austin annual and I'll put it above all of them. And he's not alone in thinking that. That is how much an impact George was having. And again, 
how much, how competitive he was with Mr. John Byrne, the two of them. But I, sent, I, I believe George looked and saw the coming of the Walt Simonsons, the Frank Millers, and no matter what, John Byrne seemed to have had uh, the favor, certainly given the excitement that he had created with, Byrne had created with, with his X-Men work. And suddenly, I mean, that Captain America year, I mean, fans were going out of their mind. I think George, like a competitive player, like someone who maybe uh, plays in the Western Conference and wants a change of, 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 of uh, a venue and wants to go to maybe a, 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 a less competitive conference where he would dominate even more. George Perez changed the narrative. He crossed the streets. He went to D.C. and he became their most important number one top talent. He was doing covers for Green Lantern, for Wonder Woman, for their Digest series, for, uh, for, for DC Comics Presents, including Justice League, including Titans. George was so in demand, and I think the fire under his belly because he saw how fans reacted. Because let me tell you something, that new take on the Teen Titans with Cyborg and Starfire and Raven, and then the reframing of Beast Boy as Changeling, along with these very adult uh, interpretations of, of, of Wonder Girl and Robin and Kid Flash, it clicked with fans. It was uh, a, a companion book in the fans' minds to what was going on in the in, in, in the uh, in the X Men. And lo and behold, and I'm not sure that George knew this, he launches the Titans as John Byrne is about to leave the X Men. So, the guy who is doing the top book, the top team book, the top kind of action adventure sci fi team book along the same lines that the Titans will swim in, that guy leaves. He leaves in a fallout with Chris Claremont. So not, not, not only is George Perez having a falling out with Marvel and he's leaving in the middle of 1980 to start this dominance that would, that would end up with him illustrating uh, the most important crossover in the history of comics, not just DC Comics, Crisis on Infinite Earths. The road to Crisis on Infinite Earths starts when he crosses the street in 1980. And Marv Wolfman comes along with him. And like I said, Roy Thomas and Gene Colan and eventually people, John Byrne and Frank Miller. And none of that, I believe, happens. Now, I know Frank had done a short story and a couple of short stories at DC, but he became a Marvel powerhouse. Mark Silvestri also did short stories in the same sort of uh, like House of Mystery, Weird War Tales. But Mark became a force at Marvel on the X-Men. Frank did short stories at DC. They gave him his his break, but boom, he became a powerhouse, a force, a a name that you uh, made synonymous with Marvel Comics, Marvel and Miller. Miller left in 1983. He went to do some experimental work on his way to doing Dark Knight. And I don't believe any of that happens, much less John Byrne doing Superman without George Perez saying, hey guys, look at, look at me over here. Look at how important I am. Look at how much they, uh, they exalt me and, and, and how much the fans eat, eat everything I do because people love these characters. They just don't get them in as commercial a way, the Marvel way, the Marvel style. It matters. And the guys who I've named, the Walt Simonsons, the John Burns, the George Perez, the, jo- the, the Frank Millers, they excelled at giving you that. Jim Starlin. Jim Starlin would also uh, find his way to Marvel during this time. Uh, George became really uh, the Pied Piper. And, and I've covered this in other podcasts, but this is the year of 1980. One day he is doing the Avengers. He is drawing annuals for the Fantastic Four. He is a giant piece of, of Marvel's history and legacy. Uh, for, for the last six years and then boom he is the number one draw at dc comics and you're going to the the, the, the newsstand and and you're and you're and you're finding these comics again i can only get to the comic book store every so often days of future past was one of those 
end of the cash register turns and the oh my gosh what is this an older wolverine gray streaks all the x-men are dead that poster shot blew me away let me tell you something about days of future past because i want to i i've 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 really gone all in on how important george perez was and there was no looking back he would go on to reboot wonder woman after he reboots the entire universe in dc in crisis in infinite earth and there was only one guy that could pull that off and make that as important and that was george marv wrote a great story but in any other artists or co-collaborators uh hands it, it, this was this was george's visionary work and don't believe me believe alex ross believe jim lee believe todd mcfarland believe eric larson everyone else who was absolutely bowled over by it dc gave george a platform he saw Man, I'm getting lost in the noise at Marvel Comics. And he shifted. And again, that is 1980. But in 1980, Days of Future Past absolutely blows everyone's mind. And let me tell you something. That's a two-part story with a great, incredibly sad, tragic twist that you don't see coming because the way that the story is going, you think that the problem is being solved. Uh, You know, I watched The Dead Zone over the Halloween season. I watched The Dead Zone with my wife. She had never seen it. I was like, what? Uh, We had to rectify that immediately. And Dead Zone, one of Stephen King's kind of finest, most unheralded uh, stories, was made in 1983 into a movie with Christopher Walken, directed by, oh my gosh, David Cronenberg. It is it is fantastic. I, I've seen the movie about six times. This would be my sixth time. I saw it at the Fox Fullerton uh, b- before the Fox closed down uh, about about three years later. But but I would go every weekend to the Fox Fullerton. They had, they had, they had double features. And... I just went on a whim to see uh, to, to see the Dead Zone. Sounded cool, liked the ads. Was blown away. The effect to, to the, the 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 Dead Zone uh, again was following in the footsteps footsteps of what I believe that Days of Future Past did so well, and, and and great Twilight Zones and 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 great episodes of Outer Limits had done that kind of time travel tweak. Can you change the future? Dead Zone deals with can you change the future? In X-Men Days, Days of Future Past, you believe they have changed the future until, oh, that tragic ending where the future is determined to come at you no matter what, no matter how many twists you try and apply. It's going to turn back to this thing that you should be terrified of. Days of Future Past, 1980. After part two, after after 142, John Byrne does a Christmas issue that is kind of an homage to Ridley Scott's Alien. Uh, and, and we're going to get to some of those Chris Claremont's homages in the television portion too because it really, really becomes obvious at this point in 1980 that, that Chris Claremont, like so many of us, look, it's not like I don't wear my Spielberg and my James Cameron uh, and, and my, my manga and my anime influences on my sleeve. I always have, I always will. But it was the first time I'm like, hey, this guy came out of that, that movie. And in Days of Future Past, there were... In the opening part, the, the people that, that that Wolverine takes out, they they look like they walked out of uh, the, the Warriors, which was a killer movie uh, released just months, if not a year prior. And 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 the gangs that that Wolverine briefly puts down are reminiscent of the depiction of some of the gang members in this movie, The Warriors. But we we get a greater glimpse again going forward. Uh, in the final issue that John Byrne does, which is a Christmas-themed issue, which finds Kitty Pride fighting against a alien that looks a lot like the alien in every Ridley Scott alien movie. And uh, then he's gone. He's no longer with the X-Men. And it was because of my trips to the comic book store that I was now buying uh, comic book fanzines, magazines, com- covering the comics industry. And they now told me, I didn't, I didn't have a, 
I didn't have any uh, you know, advance notice to George Perez shifting. But John Byrne, it was like, he's leaving the X-Men and he's going to take over the Fantastic Four. And you're like, what? John Byrne had been drawing great issues of the Fantastic Four over the last five years, on and off, uh, with Marv Wolfman. And he had even written and drawn his own kind of filling two-parter. But he's leaving the X-Men. And, and I cannot tell you, leaving the X-Men, this was like the Beatles breaking up. Claremont, Byrne, Austin had produced the most exciting work of my childhood. It has turned out to be the most exciting work of my career. And again, let's go, let's go, uh, the, the, the collectors have spoken, the prices of those back issues. Go try and buy some nice, uncanny, just raw, uncanny X-Men issues. Uh, you're going to pay th- through the teeth. These are not cheap. I'm not talking slapped. I'm not talking graded. I'm talking raw. Go, go to your market. Go to your next conventions. These are expensive comics for a reason. They are heralded. They are, they are the, 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 they are the comic books that made the X-Men that you lo- love right now. You say, Liefeld, you hype on the, you, 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 you dwell on the X-Men so much. I do. It's in my feed every day on my Facebook, on my Instagram, and on my Twitter. The X-Men, the X-Men. When's Marvel going to give us the X-Men? When's Feige going to uh, give us the X-Men? Is, is there going to be a ton of X-Men stuff in this? Are X-Men going to show up in this? X-Men, X-Men, ever since, prior to Disney swallowing up 20th Century Fox, 21st Century Fox, the emphasis has been on building uh, the X-Men bigger and better. Because the X-Men was uncontested, the favorite of comic books for almost 20 years. Do you know how hard that is to achieve? That, that is almost impossible. And, the, and the, the, the incredible achievement is how delicately they followed up Burn leaving. They brought back Dave Cockrum, who we all loved and we had great memories of. And he did some of the best work of his career in bridging that next three years on the way to one single year breakout of this animator named Paul Smith. Um, the, the Ramita Jr. years for kids, for teenagers at that time, they were, they were legitimately rough. Uh, the characters weren't as pretty. They weren't as attractive. They weren't as menacing. They weren't as cool looking. Uh, I've, I've said many times as a fan speaking as a teenager and as a pro, I think John Ramita Jr. Uh, thrives on books that are street level heroes, Daredevil and, and, and Spider-Man being chief among them. I think when he does stuff like Superman and X-Men, there's a reason that that stuff doesn't connect as well. Uh, but but he kept the chains running, and that that is of value. But then comes Mark Silvestri, and then Jim Lee, and then Joe Mad, and the X Men continue to be in great hands artistically. But what started it, the stories everyone b- built off of, and did sequels to, and and wanted to do continuations of, and the threads that are still so important to people were established in that incredible Claremont Burn Austin run. So breaking them up was like the Beatles. Wait, what? Ah. Uh, the fan in me just shuddered. Now I was immediately, they were smart, getting those early Cockrum covers out, those images out of Dr. Doom and, 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 and Storm and the X-Men. Uh, I was like, okay, okay, maybe, maybe, you know, and Joseph Rubenstein is a top flight finisher, anchor. So, okay, we're going to be okay. But what Jim Shooter achieved is John Byrne won it off. That last year of the X-Men was extremely rough. John Byrne believed, uh, that his vision of the X-Men uh, was what was selling the book and that some of the visions of that he had for the characters, he did not enjoy uh, the long debates and the, and the, uh, and, and the, the kind of the uh, friction that was created between him and Chris Claremont into how to determine uh, where the book would go. John Byrne had, had, had his um, place at the table. Again, the book doesn't go monthly until John Byrne comes on it. The book doesn't start jumping in, start in, in sales and climbing the chart until John Byrne comes on it. John Byrne definitely had weight in the matter, but Jim Shooter 
very adeptly convinced John, I'll give you one of our most storied franchises, the Fantasy Four, a top seller for us for the last decade. And I've done charts, I've done episodes showing you the success of the Fantasy Four all throughout the 70s. So here it is, 1980. We're going to give you the Fantasy Four. You can make that your own book. You can write it, you can draw it, you can ink it. And he did, especially in the first year. And that first two years of Byrne on the Fantastic Four was as good as anything I was getting out of the X-Men. It gave John Byrne uh, an opportunity to show, hey, I'm a generational big-time talent. And they gave Claremont uh, plenty of protection, plenty of opportunities. He was able to shortly thereafter spin off the X-Men into separate different miniseries with Wolverine, with the New Mutants. Uh, But John Byrne, Gave, gave us Fantastic Four shortly after, was able to co-opt the characters that he introduced in X-Men and, and, and launch Alpha Flight, which only further cemented, cemented his status as a big dog. All of this happens in 1980. All of this fallout occurs in 1980. What everyone starts off harmonious from the fans' point of view, and your top-tier books, your Avengers and your X-Men, go through tremendous upheaval. The Avengers really does not find its footing for decades after uh it, it, it is it is the top talent no longer is drawn to it because as i've said in other uh podcast because of the royalties kicking in in 1981 which john byrne did not have a part of the royalties only the second coming of dave cockrum and claremont was when those started and frank miller on daredevil and, and any anyone who was doing anything after 1981 because marvel again covered this in the in the entirety of of this podcast uh Jim Shooter had announced in 1981 that they would be doing a royalty system where over a certain amount of copies you would participate and that changed the financial structure of comic books and the X-Men was the number one top dog financial draw and people wanted to do that above all else. And with all the X-Men spinoffs that were occurring, there was always some X-Men book for you to draw. The Avengers uh, just did not become a book that people weren't the top talent we're drawn to anymore. We never got that combo. We still haven't gotten that combo. That John Byrne, George Perez, the two best guys in the business, uh, trading eras, trading trading years. I'll do 77, you do 78. I'll do 79, you do 80. But man, that summer, and, and, it, and it continued. You know, I, I said it was in August, but also in September. You had, you, had, uh, you had George Perez doing Avengers 202. You had him doing issue two, of the Teen Titans, as well as the wrap up of the Justice League, New God, the third part. Uh, maybe it's Justice League 185. But again, he is he is committed, and he is excited, and he is thrilled, and he has set the stage for so much of what would later become a talent exodus that would only make DC uh, ridiculously powerful and strong going into 85, 86, 87, which I would actually, in those years, even though Marvel had the sales. Uh, edge because they had the established icons that people bought again and again and again the spider-man uh, and 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 the avengers books but dc was just rocking and rolling and easily the more the company where the excitement was coming from because so much of the talent had migrated there and it all starts with george in 1980 incredible year incredible year of change it is the year Byrne and claremont got a divorce it is the year george perez left marvel it is uh, what, what, what sets in stone for early 91 for John Byrne to be doing Fantastic Four and then later on Alpha Flight. And, and he literally becomes, as a fan, you can just 
no problem whatsoever accessing the fact that John Byrne was the most important guy at Marvel Comics. Marvel Comics was the number one comic company, so therefore he was the number one guy in comics. The Titans would roar uh, in terms of sales and, and, and fan approval all the way up to the top of the charts and challenge uh, DC. And I'm sure that gave George, I, I, I'm not sure I know he told me what pleasure it gave that, that at one point for a period there, the Titans was outselling every single Marvel comic book. The direct market exploded during this time, and, and what gets lost in the Titans launching in the summer of 1980 is that Moon Knight launched as a direct-only comic book, as Marvel's gift to comic book stores. We're going to give you something that cannot be accessed on newsstands. And Moon Knight actually outsold the debut of the Titans by about 100,000 copies. It wasn't even close. It just goes to show that Marvel just had the juice. But Doug Mensch and Bill Sienkiewicz on a solo Moon Knight uh, series after a series of backup stories in magazines and being a guest star in all manner of different comics, Moon Knight was given his, his, his spotlight in 1980 just n- like no matter what. And again, losing George Perez only benefited DC, but I can't sit here and tell you that it hurt Marvel, even though the Avengers faltered. What would come is, is the surge of the X-Men and the Fantastic Four and, 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 and titles like Moon Knight that would more than cover the loss. George thrived. Marvel thrived. Uh, fans' head were spinning. But again, you don't get Cartoon Network's Teen Titans Go. You don't get three seasons of Titans on you know HBO Max. You don't get all the spinoffs that George Perez gives you. Uh, and, and Marv from their collaboration on Titans. You don't get Crisis on, on Infinite Earths. George leaving is gigantic and continues to pay dividends. And especially if the Titans could ever regain the popularity they had in those early Perez years, it would be even more significant. The X-Men went on to become a cultural you know, milestone. Those characters are beloved. Those characters are, are some of the top on the pop culture food chain. They were neck and neck in comics, but but they just pulled away. Titans did not uh, c- kind of fulfill their fan ambitions in going higher, and the X-Men did. And that's not my judgment. That's just a, a, a fact, a fact that is backed up uh, with all manner of, of financial uh, data. I mean, the X-Men just continued to surge, and really, the Titans may or may not have been just an aspect of the overwhelming popularity of George Perez. So before we wrap this comic book portion of 1980 with all its giant moves, the emergence of Frank Miller, the divorce of, of Byrne and Claremont, and the exodus of George Perez, all these things, huge, huge pieces on the comic book table that would determine, again, 30 years worth of stuff. Think of Crisis on Infinite Earths. Think of John Byrne relaunching Superman. Okay? Think of Frank Miller taking over Daredevil. It, 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 he's doing Daredevil. Late 79, all through 80, boom, becomes the guy writing the actual stories. These are forces that move so much and inspire a bunch of guys, hello, arm raised, who are about to get into comics and want to be them and emulate them and have paid attention to all of the different, let's say for a back of, lack of better words, manipulations. But I'm going to give you, before we wrap this, I'm going to give you this, this tidbit. When Teen Titans number two comes out, you know, in, in fall of 1980. And it's got this guy in orange and blue, and, 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 and it says Deathstroke on the cover, and, and he's taken down the uh, Teen Titans, and, and as a fan, I'm like, oh my gosh. But first glance, second, like, 
second glance, kind of second take, that's Taskmaster. He looks like, ta- he doesn't have the cape, but the orange, the blue. And I'm going to tell you a, a little aside. During the, the, the final post-production of Dead, Deadpool number one, I am at Blur Studios with Mr. Tim Miller, and he and I have never broached this top, topic. And while he's showing me some edited clips of, of, of what's going to be in the, in the final version uh, of, 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 uh, of, of Deadpool being released in about you know, two months from that point, I mean, we are in like deep post, and he's hanging out, and he goes, Rob, <clears throat> I think it's funny that people bust your ass on, on Deadpool and Deathstroke. I mean, D- Deathstroke is Taskmaster. It was just Perez redoing Taskmaster. It all starts with Taskmaster. And I'm like, Tim, wait. And again, at that moment, I realized, we're the same dude. We're the same age. We were buying comics at the same time. We saw it with the same eyes. Uh, the, the Buccaneer boots, the Buccaneer gloves, the chain mail, the orange, uh, so much of the design from the neck down, Taskmaster and Deathstroke are almost identical. But here's the deal. That's what I want to tell you. You already knew that. In 1975, when George Perez was drawing the Sons of the Tiger, and good God, looking back over this stuff, it is so, it, it's so freaking awesome. Kick-ass martial group of uh, trio of martial artists using different pieces of an amulet that, that enhance their already spectacular martial arts abilities. They are battling uh, a menace in another dimension. And at that point, three warriors emerge floating on asteroids and they introduce themselves to the members of the Sons of Tiger. And they say, Preparest thyselves, for thou hast chosen to battle on the field of Dharma, of which we be the guardsmen. These are the guardsmen. I showed this in a Facebook group a couple of years back, and they were like, what? And one guy even commented, that is a well that George likes to go down. The guardsmen, if you put your thumb over their face and their their, their, their face masks, the guardmen, guardsmen have a... Uh, 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 Upper breastplate, identical to Deathstroke. They have a strap going across with bulbs on them, circular bulbs like Deathstroke. They have chain mail. Their midsection and sleeves are chain mail. They have chain mail down their legs. They have buccaneer boots, okay, um, and wrist gauntlets. And, and they have uh, the same floating ties uh, from their mask and their belt as Deathstroke, and these guys are the precursor. The, the, the guardsmen are the Taskmaster 1.0. Okay, De- De- Taskmaster is 2.0 of the guardsmen, and Deathstroke is 3.0. George loved this design. We as artists fall in love with our own designs, but if, if, if today all you got out of the pond, all if, you, if, if all you got out of this fishing expedition going along with me on this super lengthy, extra long uh, uh, observations is that Taskmaster and Deathstroke were originally designed as the guardsmen. Put your thumb, I'm doing it right now, and that is, I am looking at, at, at Deathstroke, and I am looking at Taskmaster. George loved this design. There's no uh, big revelation here. It's fun. This is all in fun. We, we use designs. We mix and match. We, 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 we have movies influence our, our comics, and our comics influence directors making movie. It's great. So yeah, the guardsman was the uh, first iteration of the costume that you would see in Taskmaster that would then appear in 1980 in the fall in New Teen Titans number two. So yeah, a lot going on in 1980. It was one of the most exciting years, and I I, I, I really put forth that it is the year that um, so much 
groundwork was laid for everything else to come. That this is when it happened. Uh, creative upheaval movement. And, and we, who was the winner? We were. We, we, the fans, were the winners. I cannot express to you the excitement, the out-of-body experience, the sheer shock of Days of Future Past, of, of the Dark Phoenix saga, of the launch of the Titans, of the last year, 194 through 2002, of George Perez, basically in a swan song to the Avengers. And let me tell you something. I, I don't, his late 90s stuff does not hold a candle to this. It's... His early Marvel Avengers work is bold, powerful. Scarlet Witch never looked better, not in 1998. She looks the best in 1977. Cap, Iron Man, The Tension, Korvac Saga, Ultron, Bride of Ultron, uh, just George Perez, uh, Red Ronin, The Taskmaster, this creepy Immortus Saga, the, 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 the issue 200. Again, we'll, we'll dwell some on 2001 and 2002 because that's actually adapted from a short story in a Marvel novel. And I want to talk about that at some point in the near future because, man, had I spent years anticipating that this, because it was written by Jim Shooter in the novel, that it would be adapted to the comic book. And it was. So we'll, we'll, we'll go down that rabbit hole some other time. But uh, yeah, just some tremendous movement. Fantastic year. Fantastic excitement. Just one giant. It was my generation's 1992. The, what, what, when I see you and I saw some of you uh, going to the original art show and you would tell me about how much, how exciting, you know, that first year those early years of image was this this that was it for my generation 1980 is that year we felt that same excitement so we we get it we understand it we absolutely set out to be those guys so so really the 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 launch of this episode came when last week because i had different topics i had different stuff i want to discuss given that that it's november we're closing out the year you guys it is november 2023 and we're closing out the year but I saw the trailer for the brand new, been been kind of, I think, you know, in the works for a while. Maybe maybe they uh, had it in post-production for a little while because it was announced so long ago. But FX, the FX network is doing an updated version of James Clavell's Shogun novel that was a giant, massive, uh, just historically successful miniseries in 1980. In 1980, and that's what set me off. And one thing that I can just, you know, we're, we're going to discuss, I did, I did, uh, I did a Wolverine from page to screen, which, uh, I think first year of this podcast, and it talks about how Claremont and Frank Miller combined to give you their giant mega blockbuster miniseries, the first show solo showcase that Wolverine would get in 1981. And, uh, that was hugely, and I, and I stated again and again and again and again in that podcast, I give you the details of all, uh, that, that Claremont took from James Clavell. But you have to understand, James Clavell's Shogun novel took the publishing world by storm in 1975. You know, five, six years before the Wolverine miniseries and five years before the miniseries airs on television. We're going to go through the top television shows of that era, but miniseries was a, were a big deal and, and, and they, they stayed a big deal because of the success of the adaptation of Shogun. Shogun uh, adapts Clavell's novel which finds an English, uh, an Englishman named Blackthorn, who's who's on a trade ship who crashes, you know, in feudal Japan, and it goes w- from his basically being as low as a dog, uh, a, a true gaijin, to being raised up and and elevated as shogun by the end. But it, it's how he battles his way through the culture, falls in love, deals with all the different authorities, um, 
and, 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 and embraces the Japanese culture. It is a celebration of everything that was Japanese culture, and it hits in a book in 1975 and makes it into a giant a, a, a miniseries that literally took the world by storm. And I'm, I'm going to give you some stat, stats, some data, some figures that will just astound you. And it was all activated, boom, by me watching this new trailer for the updated version. And uh, the original miniseries starred Richard Chamberlain. Funny enough, they wanted Sean Connery. Sean Connery refused to uh, film in Japan. He was like, you've got to be kidding me. That's not going to happen. Not not with me. Uh, Connery was notoriously, I wouldn't say difficult, but he was very... Uh, he was very adamant about the things that he would and would not do. And this was one thing that they wouldn't do. They actually went through a series of other movie stars before landing on uh, Richard Chamberlain, who had really come, uh, uh, you know, become a favorite of, of my, my mom, the, the Patty Liefeld of the world. He was in a miniseries called Rich Man, Poor Man, I think in 1976 with, with Nick Nolte. And that's where I first remember seeing him. And once he appears in Shogun, and Shogun has the success that it does, he goes on to appear in The Thornbirds and to appear in, uh, 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 you know, all, all manner, uh, the, the Born Identity. The, the Born Identity's first life in media is, is as a TV miniseries with Richard Chamberlain. So, so it is, um, he, he really becomes a staple of, of the great American miniseries. And the reason is, is that... Shogun broke the ratings record, st- stuff that people didn't think they would see again uh, prior to the 1977 airing of Roots. And trust me, you know, I am 10 years old, 9 and 10 during the airing of Roots. And again, that was everybody was staying home watching this epic story from the slave ships to, to you know, the advancement of, of the black culture through the oppression that they were put through in in. In, in the slave system, finding their way to the shores of America. It, you know, starred LeVar Burton, and it had every single big uh, black actor, talent, and, 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 and just some big names in general uh, in this extended miniseries. Roots really took everybody by storm. After that, there was a Jesus of Nazareth miniseries detailing the, the birth conception, uh, you know, the hunting of, of Mary and Joseph, the, the early years of, of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth and, 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 you know, his teachings and, and, and him, you know, with his disciples. And it, again, that, that, that was in the crosshairs of my church, my, 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 my pastor, he was a little disgruntled. He didn't think it was completely uh, adherent to scripture as he saw it. So we heard a lot about that, whatever it was, the controversy, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth got big ratings, but boy, Shogun in 1980, it is, it is said that one in three televisions in the United States were tuned in to Shogun. In, in 2020, uh, ironically enough, uh, right in the heat of our crazy pandemic, and I'm not really sure why, but The Hollywood Reporter did a story on the success looking back. Uh, I guess it was because it was 40th anniversary. That, that would make sense. Looking back on the success of Shogun, and, it, and it's like uh, one in three television sets were tuned to the Shogun Miniseries, uh, it said the series about a British navigator marooned in 17th century Japan gave NBC the highest weekly ratings in network history. Uh, and it said, uh, it says three years after ABC's roots arrived in 1977 and was a ratings bonanza, the multi-night format was proven to deliver. 
and Shogun ruled the realm. When the 12 Hours of Shogun aired over five nights in 1980, Shogun gave NBC the highest weekly ratings in the network's history. The $22 million, $22 million for 12 hours. Uh, uh, and they said in today's, uh, in 2020's dollars, it would be $70 million. But the $22 million production was TV's most successful miniseries uh, after Roots. And again, one in three televisions was tuned in uh, to the series. Uh, the Hollywood Reporter recalls that it, 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 it offered its audience lofty romance, bloody battles, lovely ladies, ambitious men, wary friendships, betrayals, suicides, and every and even time for gentle humor and irrelevant incidents. Uh, I'm, I'm going to tell you, we were one of those families. We watched each and every night. And again, Richard Chamberlain was such a huge part of it. The series was based on the best-selling novel uh, by Australian author James Clavell. And Shogun tells the story of a British navigator who, marooned in 17th century Japan, aligns himself with an ambitious warlord uh, and becomes a political power player himself. Uh, Orson Welles was hired to provide the narration. Producers, first choice uh, for Blackthorn was Sean Connery. Richard Chamberlain, who had been a star on television in, since 1969 with NBC's show Dr. Kildare, uh, once said that he was grudgingly chosen for the role. Once everyone realized that they weren't going to get the movie star they wanted, they were happy to get a top TV star like Richard, said director Jerry London. What James Clavell was trying to get across was the adventure of a Caucasian entering the mysterious world of Japanese culture. So it went on to earn a total of 14 nominations with three wins. And so, uh, again, since 2018, FX has supposedly been developing Shogun. And while we were all sleeping, they made it. And it's coming out, I believe, in February. But seeing it again uh, really, you know, shocked me because it was probably the most exposure that me and my family at that time had had to Japanese culture. And if you go further into the research, uh, for the week that it was airing, movie theaters were down, restaurants were down, mall traffic was down. That's how incredibly popular and and word of mouth and buzzy and and the and the reach and the extent of the popularity of NBC Shogun miniseries was. Shogun averaged 28 million eyeballs for its segments. And it played big and it was the talk of the town. The the, the first night when it, when it was on Sunday night debuts, the next morning, that Monday morning at at at, at school in 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 1980, I am huddling with my friends, everyone had watched it with their families, everybody in my junior high, all the, all the guys at least had watched it. And there was a scene where character is, is on his knees. And because Blackthorne had talked about taking the piss out of something, they peed on him. They literally, the, 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 you see the liquid coming on, on him. He, uh, a samurai warlord is peeing on Richard, uh, I'm sorry, Richard Chamberlain. And we're like, wait, what the hell? Um, the dude got pissed on. We had never seen anything like that on network television. A dude got peed on, on camera, uh, filmed in a way that was very clear as to what was going down and humiliating for the character who was getting peed on. Uh, and that was honestly, honest to God, that may have carried the rest. Because it's like, if they're showing us that, what what else are they going to show us? That really, uh, honest to God, carried so much of the interest of at least the young male audience. And again, they said it was bloody. There was great sword battles. There was great consequences. There was tremendous romance. And ironically, uh, there was a character introduced a female who's obviously in the book, Mariko. And you're going, wait, Mariko, M-A-R-I-K-O, just like 
Medico, the, 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 the woman that, that Wolverine would meet and fall in love with in 1978 in the pages of Uncanny X-Men while they were in Japan? Yes. Yes. Mariko and the story of, of Logan eventually further, more, more further explored in the Wolverine miniseries, which I said is tremendously influenced by Shogun, which finds Logan being treated as a low dog gaijin, not welcome into the culture, and then has to fight his way up and prove his worth, is mirrored after Clavel's novel and later his miniseries. And Mariko is snuck in three years after she debuts in the novel that took the world by storm, which I have no doubt whatsoever that Chris Claremont read. Chris wore all of his influences on his sleeve, as did I, okay? As did I, as do I. And so it's not a big, it's not a gotcha. It's just cute. It's fun. You know, you can, you can, it's fun making connections. So the Richard Chamberlain role is embodied by Logan. And some of this is even covered in The Wolverine you know, that they put out in 2013, James, uh, oh man, Mangold, James Mangold and, and Hugh Jackman's, you know, precursor to Logan. They adapted for the most part, uh, the best parts, uh, of, of the Claremont Wolverine, but that all becomes the worldwide sensation and on everybody's radar in a much bigger way in 1980 when Shogun airs. For all intents and purposes, Shogun really kicked off the, the 1980 fall television schedule. Uh, that was, you know, because the fall schedules are always ballyhooed. Okay, I just said ballyhooed. They're they're always celebrated uh, in September. That's when everything kicks off. And and September fifteenth through September nineteenth in nineteen eighty is when Shogun aired. So we're all just back in school. We're fresh back in school. And again, this is the talk of the town. And so it's so funny to research and look up like the historic aspects uh, of, of 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 Shogun. And then it highlights the fact that uh, it was the first network show to actually use the word piss in dialogue and actually to show the act of urination on on film uh, as a symbolic act of Blackthorn's subservience to the Japanese ruling class and to punish him for saying, I piss on you and your country, Blackthorn is urinated on by uh, a leading samurai. They show basically the men from Blackthorn's ship in, enslaved in in cargo nets, uh, and and very much uh, kind of a pre uh, uh, a mirrored ver- vision of 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 how in roots, uh, you know, the white traders T R A D E R S would would uh, would capture the slaves in, in the same now, now now white men are being slaves in this feudal Japan scenery. Um, it says Mariko is shown naked in a bath scene. Uh, and her breast is visible on television during, you know. So yeah, this had everything. It had violence, it had nudity, it had urination on a guy who literally that was the talk of school that day. Shogun dominated the culture. The book uh, became more front and center uh, now that it was a number one selling 28 million eyeballs a night at every bookstore, at the Walden's books, at at, at all of the different uh, bookstores. There was bookstores, maybe one or two in each and every mall in the United States when I was growing up. And, and Shogun was everywhere. It was everywhere. And, it, and, and again, in 1980 is where the pieces fall uh, together so that you can get the Wolverine miniseries, which was 100,000% based on Clavel's Shogun novel and obviously his miniseries. For, for television during that time, the, the actual uh, 1980 you know, film schedule, you, 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 there's the fall schedule that starts in 79. 
that then by winter, by January of 1980, you're now in a 1980 season. And then, of course, there's the fall of the 1980 season, which is when Shogun airs. But to give you a snapshot of what was going on in regards to the, uh, the television uh, of the time, I mean, we are, we are looking at uh, the top-rated shows are, I mean, look, we're still watching 60 Minutes. I watched 60 Minutes just the other day. Three's Company was all the rage. It was the number two show on television. It's followed by a show called That's Incredible, where three different kind of celebrity hosts would get together and show you daring feats of, of you know, some goofy, some life-threatening, uh, death-defying. That's Incredible. What was gripping audiences with 19 million, the, the standard, just to show you how big Shogun was, 60 Minutes was the number one show, and it was getting 21 million eyeballs on average. Shogun got 28. A show, a show called Alice, which was about a, a uh, waitress and her friends that we watched every every night it aired, uh, was number four. MASH, still going strong, number five. Dallas was 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 uh, creeping towards the top of the charts, which where it would rain uh, in the seasons to come. It was number six. Flow, a spinoff of Alice, one of Alice's waitress friends, was number seven. The Jeffersons, because they are moving on up. The Jeffersons family, a spinoff of All in the Family, uh, was number eight. The Dukes of Hazard, the boys who ruled the Dukes of Hazard, was number nine. And One Day at a Time uh, was number 10. CBS was really in the driver's seat, having one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight slots. NBC was nowhere to be found. That's why Shogun was so important as a miniseries, because it was, you know, five nights. You know, you're going up against stuff that's airing, you know, 30 weeks. But that one strong showing was NBC knocking on the door that they would soon eventually dominate. You've listened to other decade series and you can see Family Ties, Cheers, Friends, uh, you know, Cosby Show. They, they, they go on to dominate. NBC becomes the number one network shortly in just a, few, a matter of years. And maybe, just maybe, we didn't watch a lot of NBC, but we watched it for Shogun. We sure as hell turned the ch- We were an ABC, CBS fan, uh, uh, show you know, ourselves, that, that, that's what we watched. Um, 60 Minutes, Three's Company, That's Incredible, Alice, MASH, Dallas, Flo, The Jeffersons, Dukes of Hazard, One Day at a Time. If we go to the fall 80-81 season, we get a slightly different story. In one year's time, Dallas has become the number one show with 26 million. The Dukes of Hazard has jumped to number two with 21 million. 60 Minutes has been knocked down to number three. This is so I gave you the 1979, 1980, and now I'm giving you the 1980, 1981. The Love Boat is number five on the ABC network and their first entrance into the top 10 at number five. CBS is one, two, three, and four with Dallas, Dukes of Hazard, 60 Minutes, and MASH. The Jeffersons are number six. Alice is still going strong, number seven. House Calls, which I don't remember whatsoever what House Calls was, is number eight. Three's Company has dropped to nine, and Little House on the Prairie is the highest uh, rated show for NBC had gone on for years. Michael Landon, the story of his family, uh, his Prairie family, uh, huge female audience. We had uh, family friends, all beautiful girls. I would have to go and stay, you know, with them one or two nights a week while my mom did something with, with, with their mom. And I've never seen that they like Little House on the Prairie the way we like Star Wars. Okay, like seeing you know the character of 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 uh is it is it Laura Ingalls Wilder? Um, I'm blanking here, but but seeing that seeing that character run down that grassy knoll 
into the field. I mean, that that was like the Star Wars crawl to them. Like you, you oh my gosh, that she's got her she's got her basket. She's gathering flowers. There, there's romance in in the town. It was not the cowboy shows that I was that I was raised in. It was a softer, gentler family on the range, and Little House in the Prairie was all the rage. I'm telling you, without females, nobody watches that show. <laughs> Just in the same way that without young men, you're not watching Dukes of Hazard, and without 30 to 40 year old woman, you're not watching Dallas and watch it become the number one. But again, none of those numbers between 79.80 and 80.81 touch what the, the, the best showing is two million behind what Shogun did. Shogun was gigantic in terms of the culture, uh, and and again roared back the the miniseries. And I am blanking. I know the Thorn Birds was a huge Richard Chamberlain uh, follow up, a big love story. Uh, and and again, he would appear in the Born Identity uh, a few years later in the eighties. Uh, Richard Chamberlain lived as the king of the miniseries, and it all started with Shogun which had tremendous impact on the culture on the culture which hopefully I've shined some light on today. So so for for part 1 of 1980 that is a wrap. The TV of 1980, a lot of comedies. A lot of goofy uh but but between Daisy Duke and Chrissy Snow on Three's Company, uh there was a reason they were calling it and you can you can google it. This is this is uh as TLC would call, tell you actual and factual. Thank you T-Boz. Uh and thank you, Chili. Uh, actual and factual is the term jiggle television. Jiggle television was in full swoon at this point from 79, 80, 80, 81. We're squarely focused on 80. And between those two charts, you get January of 1980 all the way till December of 1980. We took you through the incredible 1980 in comic books. Giant uh, shooter had to broker priest between his two biggest names, Claremont and Byrne, and then watch uh, maybe his most important penciler. And and uh, I, I, I'm telling you, if he's not 1A, he's 1B. That, that's how big George was, cross the street and create a revolution uh, that would go on to single-handedly rise up and, and, and test Marvel. And maybe for the better, because everyone, competition helps. And George certainly was, I think, uh, spurned to greater heights by knowing the, the consequences of him leaving Marvel behind and taking the challenge of making the Titans viable for the very first time. Great stuff. We will cover so much in the second part. We're going to, I think there's some pretty obvious movies that ruled in 1980 and also music that was great as more as, as well as some more comic book tidbits that I'll show that I'll throw in there. I thank you so very much. Again, I want to wear my gratitude uh, as, as openly and, and, and uh, earnestly as I possibly can. I just thank you so much for listening and for enjoying and for partaking in this show. At the end of each and every show, I share the reviews that you guys leave us. It is so important. It is such uh, a favor that you do us by by, by reaching out and, and generating um, your your uh, feedback on this show. I, I am so beyond blessed and beyond fortunate that you guys take your time to write out uh, these spectacular reviews that I can share at the end of each and every show. And today, uh, this review is is really fun. It is from uh, uh, a user who has gone and seen fit to give us five stars. His name is Adam M V. I'm sorry, Adam V Smith, 21. Adam V Smith, 21. He says Rob is brutally honest, and I love it. He gives us five stars again. Thank you for typing this out and posting it. It helps us stand out on the platform. It helps us give us a higher profile. It helps us find more. Um, eyes and ears. He says, Rob is brutally honest and I love it. I love how Rob is always so brutally honest. He was at Marvel and in the industry 
So he actually experienced these things firsthand. No shilling here. Just a man who has a passion for comics and will tell you the good and tell you the bad. Thank you, Adam. I just try and call it uh, the way I see it. And, and I try and bring to you history and the ramifications of that history, like a year, like 1980, and how incredibly significant and important it is, and share it with you. And I am so grateful that you listen. Thank you for spreading the love, for spreading the news, for um, spreading the enthusiasm, for observations. I am so ridiculously uh, just just thankful for your support. And uh, again, we're here once a week to close out the year. Uh, if something changes, I'll let you know. But for right now, that is that is the plan. Longer episodes, it looks like. I uh, hope, hope you guys are digging it. Hey, on social media, I'm on Twitter at Robert Liefeld, R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D, Robert Liefeld, the whole name, Twitter slash X, slash X Twitter slash X, <laughs> Twitter or X, I should say, much easier to say. Uh, you can find me there. Uh, I, I read your replies, your mentions, your interactions. I am so grateful that we have that way to talk and interact. And so look for me over on Twitter or X at Robert Liefeld. On Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld. I just got my main moniker. Thank you, Joy Liefeld, for turning me on so early so that I could secure that. Uh, at Rob Liefeld on Instagram, it is my video diary, my visual diary, what I'm drawing, who I'm hanging with, the things I'm enjoying. Uh, I'd love for you to join me over on Instagram. I am at Rob Liefeld, both Twitter and Rob Liefeld, the at Robert Liefeld on Twitter and the at Rob Liefeld on Instagram have blue checks signifying I am the genuine article that you were interacting with, except no substitutes, except no phonies. So Instagram at Rob Liefeld, Robert Liefeld is the Twitter handle. I have a group. It's on Facebook. You should find me. I would love to see you there. It's called Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme and Beyond. So many of the conversations that we have here and the topics that we discuss here are continued on that page. We share art. Uh, there's art contests. Uh, there, there, there is um, all manner of different discussions about comics and people just share uh, so much. We have such great, lively interactions. I would love to enjoy. Uh, I, I would enjoy it if you would find us and find us over on our Facebook group, Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme and Beyond. Myself or a gentleman named Terry Sala. He also runs the regular art contest, Terry S-A-L-A. Our, we are the two administrators, moderators. We'll be the ones that click you on through. Look for us. Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme Beyond. Hope to hang with you there soon. There's an app called Whatnot. It is the number one best collectible app for sports memorabilia, anime, manga, toys, Funkos. I'm in the comic book section. We bring our Funkos and toys into that section. I am on live. When I go live, follow me at Rob Liefeld on Whatnot. Get the app, download it. Find me at Rob Liefeld. You'll then get notifications when I go live. Generally, we do Wednesday nights. Sometimes Saturdays, we're trying to do more going into the holiday season. I have exclusive variants, stuff that I've done just with whatnot or just with myself for the New Mutants, for X-Force, for Deadpool, for Spider-Man, for Captain America. We have all manner of different fun collectibles, exclusives, variants, and we would love for you to uh, to connect with us. I do remarks on Funko Pops, on toys. There's some original art that creeps up in each and every show that you you can make available. We w- we want to offer um, art that is cheaper to people instead of the big giant, um, more expensive pieces that would would come from my art uh, dealer. So check us out on whatnot. Uh, join us on the live feeds. We have so much fun. It is me looking into the camera the entire time talking to you, whatever, 90 minutes, two hours, three hours, however long we go. Uh, we would love for you to find us. Check me out over on Whatnot. On November 15th, in one week, I have a 10-page story in Deadpool, Seven Slaughters. I hope that you will check it out. It is a character, Lady Anime, who I introduced in 2004 in an X-Force miniseries. I introduced her, gave her her introduction, uh, and and did not go back to her and finish off the proper uh, proper introduction 
of all that she can do and her pair, her powers and her and her status. And you're going to get so much of that in this uh, 10 page story. Editor in chief, CB Swolsey had called me up and said, Rob, can you please be part of this? We would love for you to be part of this. I managed to squeeze it into my schedule. I'm super happy that it landed and it made it and you'll get it. Deadpool seven slaughters out November 15th. I hope you enjoy it. And I hope to hear from you uh, about, um, um, about your enjoyment of that after you experience it. What a fun show. What a fun time. You guys know that I'm always rooting for you. I am rooting for you. I am wishing for you the very, very best. Life is crazy right now. The whole world seems like it's on fire again. And it bums me out. It saddens me as a, as a father uh, for my kids, for your kids, for everybody. But you know what? I can make my own corner of the universe bright and shiny. And I do. I distract myself. I read novels. I see movies. I eat candy. I have fun meals. I hang out with my friends. Uh, I, I just want you to give yourself that pass. Get off the grind. Um, um, find a, a happy spot with a novel, a comic book, a streaming show, a movie, some time with friends, from some family. Just feel free to take that. Uh, step away from the grind. Take care of yourself. I'm rooting for you. Big boom. Fist bump into the Blue Yeti mic that I'm speaking to right now, wishing you all the best, hoping that your spiritual, mental, physical, and uh, emotional well-being are the very best it can be. Hey, don't miss out on part two. Swing back around. I'm going to be here. I'll be waiting. I I'm going to tell you, I'm going to say it right now. Some of you have been greeting me. I, I love it. I love that you, you guys have memorized this. We will most certainly uh, very, very decisively and absolutely talk again real soon. Mm-hmm.